This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. How many times have you thought to yourself, I wish I could know more about, well, you fill in the blank. You've come to the right place. I am Chuck Jones, Executive Director of Commonwealth Charlotte and the host of the No More podcast. Each week, we'll help you know more about some of the challenges faced by low-income wage earners in Charlotte and nationwide, seen through the lens of organizations whose mission it is to address those challenges. So thank you for coming, and here we go. I read this week that there are now more than 5 million podcasts worldwide, with 700,000 available on Apple Podcast platform alone. So it does not escape me that with all those options, you've chosen to spend some time with ours, and I'm truly grateful, so thank you. Whether you're a regular listener or this is your first time finding us, I'm glad you're here. I have been looking forward to welcoming today's guest since we put his name on our roster, and I think you're going to enjoy this. Manchias Ari is president and CEO of Communities in Schools of Greater Charlotte. Communities in Schools is an affiliate of the National Community in Schools Network, which places staff inside 2,300-plus schools across the country in 25 states and the District of Columbia. In Charlotte-Mecklenburg, CIS Charlotte operates in 54 schools in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg School District, providing case management services to more than 6,000 students annually. Another 27,000 students in those same schools receive less intensive services, such as in-kind resources, cultural enrichment, college and career awareness, and more. Its website describes it best. At Communities and Schools, our mission is to surround students with a community of support, empowering them to stay in school and achieve in life. We envision a community where every child and family thrives and is positioned for upward economic mobility. We work to overcome barriers and the very real challenges that students face resulting from systems beyond their control and focus on the strengths and potential of individual students. Menchias has worked in and around economically vulnerable families for more than 20 years at Crisis Assistance Ministry for nine years and more than 14 years in two stints at Mecklenburg County, including six years in adult and economic services. He understands the challenges faced by people at all levels of economic distress instinctively. You're going to learn a lot, and I'm so glad he's here. Menchias, Welcome to the No More Podcast. Wow, thank you. It's great to be here. Good to see you, Chuck. Yeah, it's good to see you, too. I really have been looking forward to this. Now, what I left out of that introduction is that you and I share a common love, right? <laughs> Minchias and I enjoy the study of ancient philosophy. I, I, I just haven't found a good way to say that to people, Minchias. Have you? I have it, not. It, you know it, what? It, but at this time, it, I, you know, I think it's it helps us make it through this work, so it, does. it doesn't really matter, It right? does. It sounds as if you're trying to sound deep or smart or something. That's not it. It's just uh, you and I met at Community Matters a few uh, months back, and, and uh, Charlotte listeners, if you've never been there, please go. It's a great place. But we met to talk about our organizations collaborating, and we ended up talking about philosophy most of the time. So um, I'll try not to do that today, <laughs> but I can't make any promises. All right. Um, hey, we're going to... Um, go deep into the challenges faced by students you serve, uh, I promise. But uh, first, will you just tell our listeners a little bit about Menchias RE? 
Sure. No, thank you for that. And uh, you're really kind in your introductions and your opening remarks. Uh, as you stated, I have spent my entire career pretty much working to ensure that there's a safety net for our most vulnerable people. Uh, when I think about my own life, I have a, a younger daughter, Marisa. She's 23 years old, and my son, Saken, he's 26. And uh, when uh, my son was born, I, I sort of, I, I got to go into philosophy here. Go into I, it, man. I, Do I, it. Made a, I made a pledge to God. I said, God, if I don't have to worry about my children, if they're taken care of, and if they have their needs met and are able to really excel in school, I'll do everything in my power to help as many students and children as I can. Wow. And so my children are grown, and I am still living up to my side of uh, the bargain. But I grew up in uh, Bloomfield, Connecticut, a small town outside of Hartford. I was really two hours from Boston and two hours from Manhattan. I like to say that it is a suburb in and of to itself. Uh, but Bloomfield was a type of school where public schools worked. It was a time when there was a, a balanced racial composition of the school. You had all income types, and you had all various religions, and you really were able to go as far as your dreams and your will would take you. And uh, I haven't forgotten that, and that experience kind of set the expectations of what I think school should be for all children. Yeah, that's that's really, um, you know, I, I think about that in myself. I mean, I think about the schools that I grew up attending, and a small town, Tennessee, very different. But um, it feels like the uh, there were... Uh, at least enough diversity in those schools and at least enough that was going on that that you could you could learn about others and and but still feel very safe absolutely and feel like you could concentrate on education is that true today i wish it were true today i mean you know uh, charlotte has one of the largest school districts in, in the area when you think about the state of north carolina we have the second largest school district when you think about our community itself it's the second largest uh, city in the southeast right behind Tampa. And so when you put those things together, when you look at Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools, now one out of every two schools is considered a high-poverty school. It means they can get additional funding, folks can get free and reduced lunch. But think about that, one out of every two, or to be more specific, 102 out of 181 schools are high-poverty. So when I think about where the largest we're the second largest school district. We're the second largest city. It's not hyperbole to think that the next senator could be sitting in one of CMS schools. But if you take that just a little bit further, the next senator could be sitting in a high-poverty school with limited resources and supports. And that's where we come into the picture. We want to make sure that that next senator does not fall through the cracks. Wow, that's a great mission. That's very long thinking. I love that. I love the way you think about that. You know, Stephen Covey would say you begin with the end in mind. Right. That's what you're thinking about right, right there. Leave those little pebbles alone and just focus on the big rocks, that's right? right. <laughs> so so uh, tell our listeners a little bit. I know this is, a, this is always tough because there are no uh, uh, standard cases, but t tell our listeners a little bit about what a child in poverty and what a – well, let's start there, because I've got a second part of this question. But what does a child in poverty, what is their school experience like? 
Ah, that's a good question, right? Because a, a child in poverty does have the option of going to a magnet school or going to other schools in the district. But I will be specific, and if we think about what a child who lives in poverty every day and then happens to go to a high poverty school, and of course the chances are one out of every two, then what I like to say happens is the child has a certain filter upon which they look at the world. Because if you're in a surrounding where all you see is lack, then the vision for your own life, back to your Stephen Covey quote, it can't be so far. And so one of the things that I say happens is that a child living in poverty does not always get a chance to really lean into life thinking that they can be and do anything. I'll go more specific. Uh, we partnered with the corporate community last school year, and we wanted to incentivize students to go to school and to make sure that they don't, you know, that they really, we wanted to improve attendance outcomes. That's one of the things that we do in communities and schools. And so we were able to get a donation of 1,000 tickets to a Hornets game. Wow. And we were able to incentivize 500 students. They had an extra ticket to bring a family member. And I was so excited, Chuck, because I said, imagine there are going to be some students who've never been to the Hornets arena before, mm -hmm. who are going to go in there. They're going to get a hot dog. They're going to be excited. It's just going to be the time of their life. And after the event happened and I debriefed with some of the members of my team, I said, were there, were there kids who've never been to the arena before? And they're like, yes, Minch is. But you know what? There were kids who have never been to Uptown before. Man, what a statement. I couldn't believe that. What a statement. There are kids who have not been to Uptown before. So that's the filter that is often put on the lens of the children who live in poverty. And I don't think that's fair. Because, again, it could be the next senator. Exactly. And it's, you know, it does remind me, I mean, again, uh, uh, to go to something from uh, Epictetus, who's Stoic philosophy. He, he said, it's impossible to learn what you think you already know. <laughs> you know, and I, and, I, and I say that because I believe that, that we all, whether we have children in school or not, or whether we have older children or younger um, in different schools, different situations, I think that we all have our own filtered view of what life is. Yes. And we don't always realize that there might be a child who has never been uptown. Absolutely. And so that quote uh, really brings to mind one of the reasons why we do what we do. So you mentioned earlier that we are in a number of schools, 54 schools across the district. We have a full-time staff person who has their office in the school. And our founder says that communities and schools, our job is not to create programming. Our job is to nurture relationships. Yeah. And so nurturing relationships with students, it allows us to get to the root cause of what's happening in their life. And so I had a, a student say that their perspective on what to expect out of life changed after we took a group of them to Washington, D.C. to mm. tour the Capitol, to tour the African-American Museum. We mm. put them up in a nice hotel. What was that uh, perspective? I'm interested. 
She just said that she had a lower bar of what she expected from life and what she sought out of life. Uh, but what I've come to understand, everyone touts the importance of mentorship and having someone to help you see what you don't know to your earlier point. And one of the greatest gifts that a mentor, that a caring person can give to you is they can tell you the potential that they see in you that you don't see in yourself. Yeah. And magically, you begin to remember that. Yeah. So I, I was reading a book the other day, and um, in the book, it was talking about this very subject about poverty, about school districts, and about some of the disparities that occur. And um, the author shared that imaginative experience of being in kindergarten and going to the 12th grade and never having a teacher or an administrator or a parent say that you're smart, that you're doing great in school, that you have awesome potential. That's, that's just, that's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And you know, uh, we, we, we talk about this a lot in the work that we do and are always aware that a lot of the clients that we work with at Commonwealth Charlotte, they, are, they live lives that are somewhat invisible. They work, they live, they go about their business, but that very thing, uh, they get very few thank yous. They get very few acknowledgments about what they do. And if you're a child in school, that is part of what your fuel is. That, that's part of what creates who you are, because those are the formative years. Absolutely. Think about all the things that we learn bef even before school, what we learn from the time we are born until we are five years old. Absolutely. And that's, and that's what our site coordinators are there for. Our site coordinators are in the schools to build relationships with students, to build rapport with the faculty. Our goal is to really make sure that the student is ready to learn. I, I talk to our team and, and I share that our job is to really help nurture the whole curiosity that a child should have about life. You remember growing up, there were certain things that you were interested yeah. in and you would research them, you would act them out. And uh, that curiosity fueled your ability to learn new things and it supported the basic skills that you needed to be an adult in this world. Uh, everything is sort of been reduced to grades and preparing for college. And I think we've taken that whole curiosity and love of learning back to philosophy out of the equation. And so I see that we have the luxury of working on that. You know, I often say that I want to help make school cool again. And in that way, students will excel effortlessly. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not so naive, Chuck, to think that there are barriers to that curiosity for a child who, who's been working to support their family since the pandemic ended, uh, that barrier for the child who may not have enough food in their home, that barrier for the child who may be facing homelessness, many of the families that you see uh, in your day-to-day -day work. And so we don't feel that it's our job to save children. It's our job to help them remove barriers so that they can 
remove the filters to the way they see life and really achieve their highest potential. Wow. There's so much there. So I'm going to try to uh, remember some of these and I may make a note or two so that I don't forget them. But but one of the things that you said is that uh, you mentioned children that have been working to support their families since the pandemic. Is there a good estimate now of how many children disappeared from school because or, or as a result of that year of remote learning? Is there any are there any current statistics that you have? Well, I will say that North Carolina is one of the states that did not keep meticulous records on that. And so okay. as a state, we don't readily have that. Also, as a district, uh, CMS, like all other counties across uh, the state of North Carolina, they basically are incentivized to make sure that once students fall off the radar or fall off of the rolls, uh, school districts are financially incentivized to focus on the ones who show up. Mm. And so uh, that's a long-winded way to say we don't know exactly. But I do know story of a young man we actually we created some positions thanks to funding from our national office and our state office to actually go and look for kids to do some re-engagement wow. efforts yeah. with them. And there was one student who we came across who was in a, he had a predicament that he found himself in. He wanted to go back to school, but his mom shared with him that the job that he had working in a warehouse was a good job and that he needed to keep that. And what we find is that our district, although it's pretty vast and have all types of resources, we don't have many options for students looking for alternative pathways to schooling. Yeah. Yeah, we don't. And um, that's, you know, it, I, I, it, it goes back to your other point about curiosity as well. And I think that we, there are, and again, I don't want to sound like an expert because I'm furthest from being an expert on schools, but I do believe that that when we do these these strict tracks of what we think everyone should try to do, um, and, and I'll, I'll I'll defend it even though I, I maybe shouldn't, but uh, it, it it probably has good intention, but it does leave people on the sidelines. It does. It leaves those that are interested in other ways that that curiosity that they have in other things could play out for a good career for them if it was able to be um, you know uh, optimized doesn't always make it possible to do that. Absolutely. But but think about it this way, Chuck. So um, children emulate what they see adults do. And adults spend all their time telling children how important it is for them to go to school and how they need to you know, study and do their homework. But how many adults, and I, I challenge the listeners uh, to ask this about themselves, how many adults, when they see a teenager or they see a child regardless of their age, how many of them ask them what book they're reading? Wow. Yeah. Right? We talk about all kinds of things. Think about your social media feed and think about all of the celebrities, whether they're basketball players or singers or, or, or performers who sell out arenas all across the world. Imagine if they spent one minute talking about what, were, what book they're reading and challenging their fans to do the same. Our work would be 
Our work would be a lot easier. It's a lot easier. Yeah, it would. That's a great point. And we don't do that. We 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 don't uh, spend the time trying to focus with children on that. Um, that's a great point. I mean, most adults don't read one book a year. Right. And that's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. Hey, let me ask you another question. So this was the second part of that question. Thanks for all that. That's so much rich stuff. I... I, uh, we could talk about just what you did for a while. but um, So I ask you about what's it like for a child in poverty to be in school. Can you explain and give some insight on what it's like to be the parent of that child who is living in poverty but trying to navigate a lot of things, including their child's education? What is that parent's life like? Yeah, no, I think... Um I love your question, and I think we could go back and forth on that based upon the things that you've seen. Uh, I have seen parents grappling with poverty ever since I started in 1997 as a food stamp caseworker here in Mecklenburg (laughs) County. And uh, I quickly became a supervisor, and I remember having a team meeting, and I would often talk to the team about, can you imagine what it's like? for a child to ask their parent for some orange juice and the parent to say, I have to wait until they put the money on my card. Yeah. I, I can't imagine it. Right? I can't imagine that either. And you couple it with the fact that we live in a society that criminalizes being poor. Right? Yes. You walk into any facility that provides services to people who have low resources and you're greeted by a security guard with a gun, you have these glass partitions, you have people in the community saying that these people have made poor choices with their lives. You've got all of these things that add to the impact of what it's like to be a parent in poverty. Imagine a parent contending with all of the things that the child will see on their social media stream or on television or they go into the school and their friend went on a trip for the summer and this person has never been to uptown. Over time, it erodes that child's respect. It for does. their parent. It does. You're, you're the second guest we've had. We had Patrice Funderburg from uh, uh, Center for Community Transition who was talking about the criminalization of poverty. So that's a, a topic that we've talked about before. But you're right. You're right. You create those situations. And what that does is, and it's what we try to, uh, in our organization, what we try to address, and you do too, is that trauma, the trauma that's associated with that. Because a child who a child is traumatized by seeing uh, uh, the seeing the, the the different things that others do that they cannot, it creates that it, it does create trauma. Yeah, uh, because having uh, limited resources, it really limits the way in which you're able to affect your own destiny, and a child looks at their parent as being a source of safety. Mm-hmm. And if the child can see that the parent doesn't have full control over their life, it doesn't put the child at ease. No, it doesn't. And so much of what we work with uh, at 
Commonwealth Charlotte is a result in some way or another of those those um, childhood experiences. Absolutely. You know, because we know that that when someone goes through those experiences as a child, it 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 they relive them throughout their lives, and particularly if it has been an instance of poverty or scarcity. Whenever scarcity shows itself again, they relive that trauma from childhood. Absolutely, and and that's precisely why, after several years of working uh, primarily with adults, uh, whether it was at social services or whether at crisis assistance, I really wanted to work with children, and that's why I really transitioned to uh, coming to communities and schools so that uh, we can make sure that we create some type of buffer uh, for some of the unnecessary trauma, right? Mm -hmm. I I just came back from uh, a Nordic uh, exploration of schools in Finland and in Denmark, right? And so imagine a society that sets up education where it's free, not only is it free, but childcare is significantly subsidized. And uh, I was in Helsinki, and I listened to someone talk about how um, how when they created this, when they started working on creating facilities and support in Helsinki, the premise was that we wanted the city itself to be a place of inspiration and learning. Wow, the city had the as city its goal to do that. The city has its goal to do that. And not only that, there is this whole drive and push for students to have hobbies outside of their regular core curriculum that they go to. One of the hobbies was circus. 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 Mm-hmm. And so uh, you talk to them about you talk to folks in Denmark and there was a certain school that we went to in Denmark and at the pivotal point from eight would be the equivalent of our eighth grade and ninth grade or our senior year in high school and our first year in college, there are exploration classes that can be taken that will really just allow you to figure things out. There is not an emphasis on grades. There is an emphasis on learning and you put all that together and, um, I don't know how any other way to say it. They're kicking the U.S.'s butt when it comes to outcomes in education. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, so I had a conversation uh, yesterday with with someone who was talking. We were talking about child athletics. We were talking about the athletic leagues for kids five and under. Mm-hmm. And the, the what we were talking about was really how uh, there's no score kept. That what we're really doing is just playing the game yes. and the enjoyment of the game yes. and um, uh, and how learning the the rudimentary functions of the game is much easier when there's no score kept. And so as we were talking about it, we started talking about the love of sport and how you lose the love of sport as soon as you start scoring it. Yes. You lose it because all of a sudden you become you want to win the game. Absolutely. So when you get after that those those first leagues, then it becomes scoring, and then all of a sudden it's le- winning the game, and there's winning, winning and losing. Absolutely. I wonder how that would. It would be interesting to know how that could translate into education With if we grades, could ever do that. Right? If we could ever keep the love of learning, cultivation of hobbies, a mindset of um, our wanting our city to be best. And if we could ever do that 
without bringing grades and scoring into it, I wonder how our system could be changed. <laughs> well, see, now you're talking my language, Chuck, right? Because <laughs> I believe that part of my work is also to help us reimagine what learning can look like. Let's do that. Reimagine what school can look like, right? Let's do that right now. Yeah, you just started that, right? Yeah. So imagine if it weren't grade focus. And if it were skill-focused, it would be different. And, and I'll give you a specific example. Okay. My undergrad, I was a language major. Mm -hmm. I studied Spanish in particular. And there were a number of people who were Spanish majors along with me. There were only a handful of us who could speak Spanish. <laughs> because the focus was not on communicating. The focus was on getting an A. Yeah. Right. And so you so, yeah, it's it's and I think that's I think that's when you talk about that, you know, and, and again, uh, no children in the system. But but I, I hear enough about test scores and I hear about grading along that. And 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 I know that's a hot button for some people yeah. and I could probably get some negative feedback for even bringing it up. But I do believe it's something that that we absolutely are, are, are having to deal with right I took, now. I took cross country track, mm -hmm. not because I was fast. Not because I loved it, not because I even wanted to do it. I took cross-country track because I wanted to put it on my resume so that I could put it, so that I can put that on my applications when I was applying to college. Yeah. Right? That is the stuff that we're talking about. And so what happens is, because you don't have the love of learning, because you don't have that curiosity, and you're just doing things in the mechanical, just a prosaic way of functioning, um, our outputs are going to be subpar at best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think some of that goes back to what you were saying earlier that the, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the vision uh, of what a student has if their family is painting that vision for them and setting such a low bar for them to accomplish, that can be, that can add to that, I would think. Yeah. Or imagine if not just a parent, imagine if the teachers. Teachers. Yeah. 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 I had a friend when I was in, in, in high school, and, and uh, uh, at that time, it was uh, back in the 1900s. And so uh, the, um, but the, the, the counseling that went was some uh, presupposition of this person uh, based on nothing but literally appearance. Mm. And uh, his appearance uh, made him uh, subject to being directed toward classes that were not what he could really achieve. And he had to stand up and say, no, 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 I want to do this. I want to go in this direction with my, uh, with my uh, curriculum. And he did, and he ended up uh, uh, you know, going all the way through college and graduating and starting his business and doing well. And so those, those things can be impacted by the teachers, by the counseling, by the system itself in, in not helping a child realize their potential. Absolutely. I'll, I'll give you a... Uh, an example of a, an appearance situation with one of our students, and this is where the communities and schools model worked. There was a student who, she's a high schooler, she was asked to take off her hoodie in her class. And the teacher asked her twice, and she didn't comply. And so the teacher, in that very instance, 
had the choice of sending a student to the office and all of the possible ramifications that had come from that or sending them to the CIS office. And she said, go see your CIS counselor. Just get out of the class. So the student goes into the class with the CIS person in their office, and as the CIS counselor begins to talk to her, what she discovered is that her family had run out of money and she couldn't get her hair done. Right. And so she wore her hoodie in the classroom because she was being teased by her peers. Now, it's something that may seem very small to the listeners, but you know how it is in high school, and you know how cruel kids can be. And it's those moments when a child makes a decision that school isn't for me, I'm not wanting to focus, I'm not going back there. And so we were able to intervene. We were able to share what occurred with the teacher. We were able to help the child get supplies that she's needed. She was able to come back to school the next day, focused, ready to learn, and and quite proud of the the way her hairstyle was. That is a great story. You know, one of the things that that, that fits, I mean, I... I, uh, I I don't this I'm probably not the first person who have said this, but I thought of it and I use it all the time, which is uh, behind every what there is a why. Absolutely. And we're pretty good as a society and we're pretty good in the systems that we do of uncovering the what's. Yes. We do that well. We don't always uncover the why's very well. Absolutely. And I think it's unfair. I don't I don't want my example to be misconstrued. I think it's unfair for us to expect our teachers, particularly teachers in our high poverty schools, to have time to unpack the why. Right. With every indiv- cuz every individual why is different. Every individual why is different and they are under pressure to make sure that they are focusing on test scores and school improvement. Mm-hmm. And so you have the the schools are not equal. You have some school with abundant resources and teachers have opportunities to have planning times. You have other schools that the teachers are still recruiting. You know, a, a friend of mine is a principal and I asked him how his summer went and he shared with me that it was tough, but he had to hire 28 new teachers over the summer. And this is a small K through eight school. And so uh, when you are a teacher and you're trying to start out, you have a choice of going to a fully funded school with resources, PTA, endowments, or you can go to a school uh, where you need to work cafeteria duty and do extra planning and try to sub and fill in for the vacancy next door. It's unfair. and Teaching is hard work. Hard work. And it's harder when you're in a high poverty school. But that does, as a great dovetail and a segue, we didn't even plan that, to to communities and schools. I I would love for you to tell our listeners, uh, communities and schools, you got a great staff. I've spoken to your entire team, and I've met many of them and worked with them, and you do have a great team. Yeah, I am am fortunate. Yeah, tell, tell our listeners what some of what some of the day is like for someone who is in that office, in that school, as a communities and schools representative. Yeah, so um, that person becomes a part of the school community. Uh, 
They follow the schedule of the school. They follow the dress codes. And they really become, I often say, sort of like an anthropologist where you forget that they're there and they just become a part of the society. Um, But they basically do what is needed. Uh, They check in on students. They, a lot of our focus is basically helping students with their social and emotional supports, helping them navigate some of the challenges that they find themselves in, uh, given the examples that we talked about living in poverty. They go in and peek in on classes. They provide encouragement and support. Uh, They make referrals when things are happening. So the teacher can't necessarily do referrals. The teacher can't do a home visit. The teacher can't call the parent. And all those things that we can do in communities and schools, we can connect that student to tutoring. We basically are a quarterback, basically looking at all of the different resources and referral systems outside of the classroom to make that student ready to learn. If a child is facing homelessness, we can sit, we can fit in and help them remove those barriers, barriers to housing instability. Excuse me. Uh, if they are dealing with food insecurity, we do the same. But not only that, on the other end of a spectrum, we provide supports for first-generation students who are going to be first in their family to go to college. Last year, we took over. 35 college tours. We took students all to different colleges. We helped parents navigate the application process, completing FAFSA, all those things. And so we really meet the students where they are, and our goal is to really help them lean into their potential. Are you working through K through 12? Do you have all ages in the schools? We primarily start with uh, second grade okay. through uh, twelve. Uh, but we're also excited. We are beginning this year to work with students who are graduating. So we're going to work with students who go through the program that I talked about earlier, the Difference Makers program, where we take a cohort of students to Washington, D.C. Uh, we actually are going to keep track with them. Our goal is to connect them with social capital, connect mm-hmm. them with people who are in the fields that they're in, people who are doing things that they're doing, people who can help nurture their love of learning to sort of remove that filter in which they see the world. Yeah, that's great. That, that, and and those bridge services are what sometimes I call them gaps also, you know, we have gaps of service. We have, you know, organizations that do X and Y and Z, but there's no, there's many times gaps between that. So when someone leaves one uh, organization or working with them, they, they don't immediately translate to where to somewhere else. Yeah, no. I, and the thing I, I, I'll be remiss if I don't share here is that uh, the approach that we take is evidence based, right? We're part of a national affiliate system. And when I, I talk about the our connection with CIS National and affiliates all across the nation, I say that I am fortunate to be part of a movement where collectively we support 1.8 million students students. And uh, what we focus on is academics, behavior, and career and college readiness. And we also provide supports to parents. And uh, it has been proven that 
uh, by really helping to nurture and remove barriers for students that they will be successful in school. Oftentimes we have a direct partnership, uh, whether through meetings or through informal agreements with the counselors and administrators at the school where we come together and really develop a strategy to make sure that uh, the students who have the greatest needs are supported. And I would say that you're, that's, that's, uh, I would say that you're, you're, uh, Representatives in the schools also develop a very kindred relationship with the teachers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, It is not uncommon for us to, at some point during the year, do a teacher appreciation or do something to really help the teachers. Uh, because we see firsthand how difficult their jobs are, and uh, we really see how much the teachers really pour in to really make sure that the students are successful. I think it's a great partnership, and uh, when I talk to my peers across the nation, um, I do realize that the relationships that we have with CMS is unique and is special, uh, and we appreciate the, the data that we get from them, the technical support and uh, the funding that CMS provides us to really continue to do this work. Yeah, it's a great program. It's a great program. You should be, uh, you and your entire staff should be uh, happy about the work that you do. It's, it's, It's tough to be happy sometimes, isn't it? Well, it's tough to be happy when your work is really... Uh, grounded in the fact that there's educational inequities in our system, right? I and say that all the time about our work. You know, we, we, I, 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 I like the work that we do and I like the results, but we would not be here and let, if there weren't people who were struggling financially. Absolutely. You would not be there if there wasn't students who were struggling educationally. Absolutely. Or if there weren't um, outside barriers that yeah. impact their academic performance. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Because there is a one-to-one correlation with someone living in poverty and increased um, instances of absenteeism. And then that correlation between absenteeism and school performance is there. So basically, you can see the correlation between poverty and academic performance. You can. And you can see that in what we do. You can see the correlation between poverty and work performance. You can see the correlation between poverty and the ability to escape and get out of some of the financial barriers Absolutely. that people face. Absolutely. You know, that if you, if, you, if you have those, if you live in poverty, it's very tough to, to get a, a, a firm building of assets. Yeah. It's just tough. Well, I, I want to say uh, thank you to you and your team. Uh, we have had an opportunity. You know, you talked about us going to Community Matters Cafe and and sort of talking about the type of work that we do and to to see if there's some points of intersection. And uh, you and your team worked with uh, a project that we're doing in conjunction with DigiBridge, in conjunction with the Marenkis Foundation, Bearings, and others to really make sure that we... uh, uh, Avid Exchange, excuse me, to make sure that we are able to provide referrals and support to families that we are working with to um, to give them the financial counseling and advice that they need. And, and I, I, I remember very vividly uh, in an evening, a uh, number of parents had come to uh, the programming and uh, we were providing 
support, your team was providing support both in English and in Spanish, and just to see the questions that were raised, to see mm-hmm. uh, the level of engagement, I, I definitely appreciate your support. And I know it's hard for a parent to uh, having worked all day, sometimes having limited transportation to really come out and do that. And your team has made themselves available to support the families afterwards. So uh, I'm really thankful. Well, I appreciate that. We really try. And uh, and uh, so I, I appreciate that. Um, so our, our podcast is called No More with a K. Okay. So I think we've uh, hit a lot of, I, I know that I know more <laughs> than I did, even though you and I have talked before. But embedded in that is the word no. And so the podcast is also about no more. What are some things that we should look for? What could we do as a community to make educational challenges no more? (laughs) I love uh, those uh, word plays there. I think um, to make educational challenges no more, we have to really acknowledge the fact that Um, Some of the challenges that our students face are built in residual educational inequities. There are just things that are built into our system that make it more difficult for students living in poverty, that make it more difficult for our students who are black and brown, right? Uh, I think that we also should know that the teachers are not the only people responsible for providing education and and inspiration to students. I challenge you to ask the student you see in the store, ask the child you see in the park, what book are you reading? Right, Right? I love that, Uh, you said that, I I love that idea. Yeah, I I think we also um, have to realize that um, families who live in poverty, a lot of them are there due to one major instance or catastrophe in their life, whether it's a protracted illness and they have a medical bill or whether something happens to their vehicle or they somehow lose their documentation needed to get their registration and they've got these tickets. And it's just one event like that, right? I think we should know how close to the edge People yeah. in this community are living. I'll, I'll, get, I'll share a story with you. Uh, you know, um, during the holiday season, we provided turkeys to families we were working mm-hmm. with because that's what you do. You give right. out turkeys. Sure. And uh, we were happy that all of the families that we were working with were able to get turkeys. And then a month or so later, we were able to do a home visit for a family whom we had given a turkey to. And uh, the the parent had rescheduled the home visit a number of times. And when that happens, there's usually something underlying that. And so our site coordinator asked, should should we meet at a cafe or something? And and finally, um, she built the trust of the parent. The parent let him come to the house. So they went to the house, did a home visit, talked to them. Being in their environment, sometimes you get the full story. Just as our site coordinator was walking out of the house, the parent stopped her and said, I want to level with you. I appreciate the turkey you gave us, but we couldn't cook it 
because our stove hasn't worked in a year. Amazing. Right? And so we worked with community partners, and we were able to get a stove donated that we were able to give to the parent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I say that is just because we don't know right. what our neighbors are going through, and we don't know what is underlying uh, why students don't pay attention, why students may be distracted, why students may skip school, all those things that don't show up on test scores, that don't show up on school report cards, but are truly um, factors that will follow this child potentially for the rest of their life. It's the whys. We know the whats, we don't know the whys. And there's an old... uh, proverb of some type i can't i'm, I'm going to quote it wrong but it's it's you know you, you be kind because you don't know the burden that the other person is carrying absolutely and we don't know that we think we know but we don't know absolutely sometimes we don't really care and sometimes we don't care and that's even worse and i think we need to care need to care wow we could talk forever absolutely let's do it over coffee so let's do it over coffee hey so i've got one uh, one piece of wisdom that i will uh, uh uh pass on to you this is from um marcus aurelius okay and when i was looking uh today at my my little book of of notes i thought about talking with you and i knew this was going to be applicable to you so i'll uh, i'll say this um every person is worth just as much as the things are worth about which they busy themselves <laughs> You are busying yourself with good work, my friend. Well, I love that. I'll end, I'll match your quote with one that's similar. And uh, I, I, the, the author is escaping me at this moment. But the quote goes that I talk a lot about the things that I love. And sometimes I use words. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great way to end it. That's a great way. Hey, good work that you're doing. Likewise. Um, communities and schools, can, uh, can our listeners volunteer with you? Absolutely. We are actually revving up our volunteer opportunities. We kind of put that on hold after the pandemic with the school closing, but we're really revving up volunteer activities. You can go to our website, www.cischarlotte.org. We'll put that in the show notes. Absolutely. And this is also our campaign for all in for kids and uh, the work that we do is definitely supported by volunteerism and people who uh, really want to make sure that every child has an opportunity to reach their full potential yeah i love that is there a can you donate to your uh, organization as absolutely well? <laughs> if you go on that website this is our time of year where our donations and our campaign is revving up in fact today is our first day so it's wow. it's kismet that i'm here yeah so uh really uh thank you all in advance for the support that you provide uh to students in our community again we serve provide direct case management service for 6,000 students. Uh, We provide supports for a total of 31,000, and we're part of a national movement that serves 1.8 million across the nation. It is good work, friend, and I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad to know you. Thank you. It's great for you to have us. I'm honored that you included us in the lineup of folks that you spoke with, and I appreciate the work that you and your team are doing as well, Chuck. Thanks, buddy. We'll be together soon. All right. Okay, thanks for listening. 
If you want to know more about Commonwealth Charlotte and the services we provide, see our website at commonwealthcharlotte.org or email info at commonwealthcharlotte.org and someone will be in touch with you. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. dot com.